0: All right, fun times with technology. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help this morning as we get into your Word. You ask us to ask you for wisdom if we lack it, and we confess that often we do. And so we want your uh, we want your help. We ask you for wisdom and humility to submit before. The command of your word that goes forth that we would be able to rejoice in all of your promises for the glory of your son it's in his name we pray amen all right well good to be with you guys as always let's open our bibles to the book of daniel we'll start there very briefly because while we will not spend the bulk of our time uh, exploring it as we have in the last several weeks i do believe it is important to link what we're saying uh this morning to the book of Daniel. As we understand, Scripture, though, written ultimately by God and many different authors, thank you, appreciate it, those differences do not undermine the unity of Scripture. That's a major doctrine we hold and that we teach here, is that Scripture is unified. Scripture does not contain errors. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so, if we really want to understand what the Bible is saying, the first place we go to after we pray is to see what other scripture has to say about the one understudy. And so I think to get a fuller understanding of what is occurring in the book of Daniel as we forge ahead, especially given the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's vision, I think we have to really understand that this vision that Daniel is going to give King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter two, if you're not already there, is based in a promise that was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And I think it's very important to see those links because what is going to be promised in Daniel through this vision given to King Nebuchadnezzar is is immense. It is immense. And it details what is going to be accomplished through the work of the Messiah. If you want to draw your attention to the book of Daniel... In chapter 2, so when we get into this next time, we'll probably start at verse 31. But I just want you to draw your attention very uh, very quickly to verse 35. So after Daniel describes the statue, and almost all of us in here are familiar with this vision. We read, about, we read about this great statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreams about. And then, at the very end, after describing this statue, Daniel says this regarding the dream. Verse 35, But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So after the statue is described, there is this stone, verse 34, cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And then it blew away as chaff in the wind. And so we have to say, is this something that is new, or is it based in an earlier revelation? I would say it is based in an earlier revelation. Everything we understand about the gospel today is rooted in one of the most fascinating and important texts in all of Scripture. And I don't even think I've preached this this uh, this text before. But if you if you combine both mine and Jeremy's sermons and Bible studies and uh, and Sunday schools, this is probably far and away the text that we would cross reference the most. If there is a text that seems to inevitably come up in one of our messages, it is Genesis 3.15. And it's often known as the proto-evangelion, the the pre-gospel, the gospel in seed form. And so I invite you to turn there because this will explain to us the source of what is going to be revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. The rock, I believe, represents... Jesus, right? He is the stone cut out without hands. And as he, as he completes the mission that the Father gives him, I believe that this, what's this stone cut out? There must be a bigger stone. I interpret that larger stone as God, God Himself. And so this mountain that becomes the entire world, that fills the earth, so essentially the whole world, you, you can't turn anywhere in the world and not see this mountain. That mountain represents the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that all the earth becomes the dwelling place of God and man together. So what we see really is a greater Eden, a greater mountain, a greater garden. I have said before, but I believe that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain as it is described, that rivers flow out from it, rivers flow down from it. And well, that means inevitably that the Garden of Eden that God had made is in an elevated place. And of course, just giving you a sneak peek, it is, it is the mountains in Scripture that is typically not only where very significant things end up happening, but a mountain often represents the meeting place between God and man, much like the temple does. So you have all these motifs in Scripture. You have mountains. You have gardens. right? You have temples. And so we go back to the original meeting point between God and man, and we see that this ends up being the source in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, really the source that Daniel in his vision will build upon. We all know the tragic story of the garden. We know that this is in chapter 3 where Adam and Eve fall into sin and thus plunge humanity into a curse and into death and into sin. And their posterity, by and large, rebels against the God that they used to walk with daily in the Garden of Eden. Of course, they lost paradise. They were estranged from God. And in spite of that, God still gives them grace. But this grace is announced in the form of a promise. And once again, we're familiar with this. The serpent, verse 1, more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, says to the woman, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So first we see this questioning of God's Word. And as this narrative continues and these promises from the serpent are made, the woman is deceived and she eats the fruit. And we don't seem to have a very clear picture of what in the world is going on in Adam's head at this time, but apparently he simply listens to his wife and he takes the fruit, and even though he is supposed to guard the garden, he is supposed to protect the garden, and therefore his wife from being such as this serpent, and yet he, he falls in with his wife, eats the fruit, their eyes are open, they realize they are naked, and then they hide from God. God calls out to the man, says, where are you? In verse 9, and then Adam responds in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, I was afraid... Because I was naked, so I hid myself. And of course, judgments are pronounced. Excuses are made. Blame is cast. But then we come to verse 14 and we have this situation clarified because now God is speaking once again. In the narrative Genesis, you'll notice that everything is good. Everything is clear. There's no confusion about who's in charge. There's no confusion at all. Man knows his duty. He knows what he is supposed to do. He knows the God that he is supposed to worship. But then as soon as someone else starts talking, this serpent, then that's when things go tragically awry. But verse 14 says this, "'The Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, "'cursed are you more than all cattle "'and more than every other beast of the field. "'On your belly you will go, "'and dust you will eat all the days of your life. "'And I will put enmity between you and the woman "'and between your seed and her seed. "'He shall bruise you on the head.' And you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, there are other, there are other uh, afflictions that accompany this, but I, I don't want to go down too many rabbit trails. We could spend weeks talking about all the implications of this passage, but I want to attack it from a particular angle. Additionally, because it is Christmas season, because Christmas season is upon us, it's often enjoyable to, to look at the gospel itself. Simply be up here and encourage you with the truth of the gospel. And this is this is the starting point. This is the starting point. This is where this initial promises, a promise of God or from God of a redeemer, of a Messiah are announced and then the rest of scripture is really an expansion of that. And as you read through the narrative of the Bible and the tragedy that is human history, we see these promises given details, we see them expand. We're given more and more light as the biblical narrative continues. And of course, as God's people, we can rejoice in that, that God has not left us to our own devices. We can rejoice in the fact that He has given us His salvation, that He has given good news to us, that He has, from our standpoint, sent a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior. And from, once again, the standpoint of Daniel, we are living in the midst of seeing that mountain grow. But it all began with this promise here in Genesis chapter 3. And so the the title is From Cursed to Conqueror, the Gospel in Genesis. And I'll give you the the, the main three points up front. From Cursed to Conqueror, the Gospel in Genesis. First of all, to understand what it means to go from Cursed to Conqueror, a war must be declared. The word conqueror understands and assumes that there is a conflict present between at least two sides. So a war must be declared. Secondly, a promise must be preserved. We have to understand something. This promise was made a long time ago. And it is a promise given by God Himself that not only must be preserved, but that we ultimately do see preserved throughout redemptive history. We know that God is true. We know that His counsel will stand. And we know that nothing no matter how seemingly ominous or threatening, will ever come to undermine the promise of God. It is amazing. I was thinking about this this morning. This concept of open theism that God does not exhaustively know the future. And I was thinking, wow, (laughs) how much does God not have to know in order for this promise to be compromised? For all the ins and outs, all of the details, all of the hundreds of years, all of you think the the contingencies, the situation, the, the, the people involved, because we're dealing with people here, and people are liable to fail. People are liable to let one another down. People are liable to rebel against God. And I would think if one thing demonstrates that God does indeed have exhaustive knowledge of the future, it is this promise made in Genesis 3.15 and fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think we can be steadfast in our understanding that God knows exactly what's going on. He knows how he is going to carry it out. And one of the great miracles at work here is that he uses human instrumentality to preserve preserve this promise. It's amazing. And so that promise must pre- be preserved. Thirdly, a victory must be secured. So a war must be declared, a promise must be preserved, and a victory must be secured. Those are the main three points. And of course, there's going to be some interplay back and forth, but I think there is Plenty of application for us. So, verse 5, verse fourteen of Genesis chapter three kind of gives us the introduction in this curse that is pronounced. And at first, he curses the serpent. He says, "Because you have done this," that is the serpent. Cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now, here's a potential rabbit trail: is that what exactly is the serpent? Various commentators believe that there is more than simply a slithering snake in play here. The word in Hebrew for serpent is nakash, literally meaning the shining one. It is not a snake, even though nakash sort of has echoes of a, of a hissing sound. But you read on in the book of Revelation, you read even in Job about Leviathan. I think if you put the biblical text together, you do very, really, very truly have a dragon in view here, at least as as the the biblical text presents it. In Revelation, we see very starkly that our adversary, the devil, is presented as a fiery red dragon. He is the enemy of humanity. He afflicts the people of God. And as much as we could explore this, again, we don't really have time, and that that is not catered to our purposes particularly here, but all we see and we can affirm is that, this serpent, this shining one, this dragon as it were, the devil himself has set himself over and against not only God, but also his image bearers. He is declared in his actions to be against man. But I don't want us to miss this here. A couple things. It is God who declares this hostility. It is God who declares enmity and God of course has the final word but he has not left us without a promise he has not left us without grace I think that's especially seen in the fact that God clothes the man and his wife as we read on in this narrative but notice that automatically in this curse we see that the serpent is vulnerable he says on your belly you will go I don't know maybe that implies that he had more appendage he had appendages (laughs) arms and legs perhaps but he says now On your belly you will go. Nothing more vulnerable than a person either on their back or on their belly. Automatically, we're given some light, some hope here. Note the enemy's position. He is on his belly. Not only is he is he a lowly creature, I mean, one of the greatest phobias today, I think, other than public speaking, is a fear of snakes. People just don't like snakes. But if we look through Scripture's eyes, we see a vulnerability there. In spite of how frightening they may initially appear, in spite of the, the venom, in spite of the speed and the hissing and the sounds they make, we see an enemy who is already beginning to be put in his place and he is on his belly, presented as a loathsome creature. But it is God here who declares the war. And here we see this I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So there is this war that is declared. Of this passage, Matthew Henry remarks, God passes sentence, and He begins where the sin began with the serpent. The devil's instruments must share in the devil's punishments. Under the cover of the serpent, the devil is sentenced to be degraded and accursed of God, detested and abhorred of all mankind, also to be destroyed and ruined at last by the great Redeemer signified by the breaking of His head. Thus God says, I Myself will put enmity. Enmity signifying this is a good translation, signifying hostility, right? A battle that has taken place. And the two will never make peace with one another. Those who try to make peace with the dragon will go down with him. They will suffer the wrath of God in the lake of fire. There will always be a conflict here. it should seem foolhardy knowing this for, you know, to, to, to make any attempt to be friends with the world. Right. To make alliances with unbelief. To make covenants with those who hate God. And I think this, this folly is strengthened. It's galvanized by the fact that it is God who puts enmity. Right. God has put the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman. Of the serpent. It's not something man does. It's not something that is incidental to this passage. We see a very deliberate declaration and act by God Himself. I will put enmity, I will bring this hostility that exists. So there will always be conflict. And therein lies a very clear reason that it is so wicked for the church to compromise with the world because it attempts to lift the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the serpent of the woman which God has declared. This has always been true of the people of God. Do not make alliances with those who rebel against Me. Do not marry foreign women, He tells the Israelite men. But listen to Exodus 34. This comes after the covenant has been renewed. Remember, Moses comes down the mountain. He sees sees the Israelites partying like it's 1999, engrossed in sin, worshiping the golden calf, and in a fit of anger he throws down the stone tablets, breaks them, and then God gives him new tablets in Exodus 34. Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among you whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you." Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. So he's going nation by nation. These are all the peoples I'm going to drive out. And if I'm going to drive them out, don't make friends with them. It's a great illustration even of the sanctifying process. That through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are being freed from the very power of sin. And if God is driving that sin out, then don't flirt with it. Don't cling to it. Because that's going to tear you to shreds. So in the same way, he tells his people, don't, don't make partnerships with these nations. He says in verse 12, watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. Not might, it will. This is going to happen. This is not my purpose for you, O Israel, to make covenants with the Canaanites. I am going to go before you and destroy them, so don't befriend them. Like, how much clearer could God be? And yet we fall for the same trap. He says, but rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram, You see, but there is a crushing here. There is a bruising here, right? It's the victory that we have in God. We have to know that this victory He gives us over the serpent is a shared victory. It's accomplished solely by God, but He shares the victory with us so we can rejoice in His provision and grace and power. "'Smash their sacred pillars, cut down their asherim, for you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God.'" Otherwise you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice and you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You ever heard the, the, the story of King Solomon? That's exactly what he did. He took a bunch of foreign wives and what did he do? He bowed down before their gods. He played the harlot with their gods. And so he says, you shall make for yourself no molten gods, right? The true and living God is not a God that can be forged by human hands or by human technology. That's why we ask the question, what fellowship does light have with darkness? You see, the same same instruction Paul gives to the church. What fellowship does light have with darkness, right? What fellowship does Christ have with Belial? Belial. What fellowship does the church of the living God have with the temple of idols? There is no fellowship. There is no common life. There is no friendship. That's why James warns the Christians in James, I believe it's chapter 4. Do you not know? It's like this is clear. Pick up your Bible and read it. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Not neutrality enmity, hostility. If you befriend the world, you are declaring war against God. And we find here from the very beginning that all who declare war against God will have their heads bruised, will have their heads crushed. You're joining those who are already vulnerable. You are joining those over whom victory has already been declared. And so the church does well to take that warning. And if you think about linking it to Daniel, we talked about Daniel not eating the king's delicacies, right? Because to do so would be to partner with King Nebuchadnezzar. It would be, in a sense, to become one with him. To join his cause and therefore forsake being a true Israelite and then becoming a true Chaldean. An idolater like the rest of them. An an astrologer or a sorcerer or a magician. He would have become like the rest of them. The fellowship with that kind of darkness. But he maintains his integrity and so is given wisdom and power from on high to interpret visions and even know what, the, know what those dreams and visions are. And they reflect the promises of God. So That's the first thing. War must, dec- must be declared. And it's a great warning for us today that we are not to take a neutral stance toward the things of this world. We cry out repentance because we do have the hope of the Gospel. One of the things that I don't want to forget to say is that even though there are curses present, present only in Jesus Christ can those curses be reversed. That is the hope of the Gospel, is that the curse can be reversed. The curse can be undone. And that is why we proclaim good news of peace to the nations. Right? We do it every We do it every Christmas. It really amplifies that, hey, a king is born. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. All that good news from Isaiah chapter 9. The increase of his government, his kingdom. There will be no end, right? The mountain is going to grow. Inevitably, unstoppably, irresistibly. So that only one king will matter. Great reminder for us today. So a war must be declared. Secondly, a promise must be preserved. And so here is the promise, the great promise of a deliverer of salvation. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Note that there in verse 15. Between your seed and her seed. So we really see a battle of seeds going on. Right, Seed referring simply to offspring, right? And seed ultimately refers to singular. It is pointing toward the work of Jesus Christ. We don't want to miss that. Right? Not plural. This is not going to come down to many people and a great collaborative effort to redeem humanity from the clutches of sin and death. No, it's going to come down to one person. To seed, not meaning many, but to seed, meaning one, that is Christ. That is the promise that is given and that is the promise that we have today. And so seed remains one of the most important themes in all of scripture, right? Because we see this promise, right? It is a promise made, but it must be preserved. And so throughout the throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, we see all this opposition against the seed, right? Very important theme. But before we even talk about that opposition, let's 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 bring up to let's bring us up to speed here in the scripture. If you go to Genesis chapter 12, enter Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, verse 1, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So through Abraham's seed, through his offspring, all of the earth will be blessed. And of course, we find a problem here, from a human point of view at least, is that Sarah is barren. And they are both old people. (laughs) They are well past childbearing age. And yet, God gives this promise to him. He appears to him again, if you want to flip forward to... To chapter 15. After these things, the the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is, is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, I love this, All this all this talk, right? All this, but God this, but God that. But then the word of the Lord said, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants, i.e., so shall your seed be, so shall your offspring be. And, don't miss this, verse 6, and he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to Him as righteousness. That's how we know how people in the Old Testament were saved. They believed in the promises of God and they were justified even as we are today. We have imputed to our account an alien righteousness, not a righteousness of our own making or conjuring, but the righteousness of Christ Himself. That is God's promise. So, in chapter 16 of Genesis, we see this in verse 11. The angel of the Lord said to her further, that is Sarai, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son. Oh, sorry, that's Hagar. So this, pro- so, so this is made to Hagar. Don't miss this. Verse 11. And you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. So there in a sense is a counterfeit. Ishmael is not the promised seed. Even though there was unbelief involved, right? Abram, take Hagar, your, your maidservant, have seed with her. But that went against the promise of God. It was to come from Abram's body, but it was, but it was Sarah, here Sarai, was to bear a son. And so in chapter 17, he comes to Abram again, who, who is 99 at this time. And he says in verse 2, I will multiply you exceedingly. He says, you will be a father of a multitude of nations. Therefore, your name will be called Abraham, verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, your seed after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant and and be God to you and to your descendants after you. So he's declaring this promise, and then from that promise, he said, "Here's these here's these itinerant benefits. Not only are you going to have offspring, you're going to have a son. I'm promising you land. I'm promising you a nation. I'm promising you blessing. I mean, these are these are huge promises, nearly unfathomable from his point of view. But what do we read? He believes God, and it is reckoned to him as righteousness. This is simply the promise that is expanded from Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. There will be seed involved. There will be there will be a, a human being, a man. You think that's really an awesome promise, considering that it was just a man who plunged the entire world into death and sin. But God makes this promise. God often use, works in very ironic ways, right? It was a man who messed everything up, and then it becomes a man, right? The last Adam, the life giving spirit who, who gives salvation to sinners I mean from our standpoint we should think how how, what's going to happen here how well can this go well if it's based in the promises of God it can go greater than we can ever even imagine this promise is going to be preserved so this is the seed in question God reaches out to the pagan Abraham gives him life gives him righteousness And so we see that the seed, the Redeemer, will come through his line. And so in this, we, 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 we see revealed all kinds of potential. We say potential because they're never really going to happen because the Word of God is ultimately never really threatened, right? The Word of God will stand. But even though the devil has judgment and a curse, right? The invoking of divine judgment put upon him. He will not admit defeat. And so we see through the same narrative, all of these apparent dangers to this promise. And yet God preserves that promise, right? I mean, we can't really talk, we can't really go into great detail about talking about giants, but no sooner have we received the promise that the Messiah will be a man than the entire human genome and race is corrupted by the sons of God when they go into the sons of man and offspring are born to them. And more importantly than even this is that the entire world, all of mankind except Noah is plunged into wickedness. Okay, If all of the world is in sin, if all in, the, all in the world are rebelling against God, then how is this promise going to ever be fulfilled? That's a good question. But then we read this, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's how guys, it's always grace. The answer is always, only ever grace. And so, we're saved. So there's this potential threat, and yet Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that grace continues. This grace of preserving the seed. So even though there is an apparent threat by the enemy who knows the Messiah will be a man, this threat is abated by the intervention of God. And we find that God is not threatened in the least. He will keep His promise. He will preserve His seed. Many threats. Many threats and obstacles. Just to kind of categorize them here, we'll move through them quickly. When we go back to the narrative of Abraham, what's the first first apparent threat? Barrenness. Right? Abraham, through you, through your offspring... Shall come the Messiah. Through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Up, oh, there's a problem. My wife is barren. We, we read that in Genesis 11, 30, 16, 2, and also chapter 18. Same with Rebecca, right? I think it doesn't stop with Sarah. It continues with Rebecca in Genesis 25. But in each of their case, the Lord opens their womb and grants them offspring. It's like, we don't want to miss this, right? Even though he's using instrumentality, the supernatural power of God is clearly at work. It does not rely on human works or human effort, but it's always the power of God. And so he opens the womb of, well, the wombs of these women so that that seed can continue and be preserved throughout hundreds of years. Thousands, really. And then, of course, when we come into the, the narrative detailing the, the, the rise of the people of Israel... They were constantly failing, right? They, they did not heed the warnings of God to not covenant, to not make alliances with the pagan, the surrounding pagan nations. And what did they do? They did just that. If anything threatened to break Israel apart, it would have been just that. But what do we read in this narrative? They weren't, they, we read, we read that God did not preserve them, preserve Israel on the basis of their ability to keep the law. They were Preserved on the basis of a promise. God was always calling to mind, always remembering, as the text says, His promise to Abraham. right? The promise to His people that their failures would not compromise His ability to keep His Word. right? If we're faithless, He remains faithful because He will not deny Himself. The Lord will not deny His own Word. So in spite of all of the immorality, in spite of all of the 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 turning away and then the apparent repentance and then the rebellion again and then the repentance. We see that sick cycle throughout the book of Judges. God remains faithful in delivering His people and preserving the seed. We read that in Numbers 25, Ezra 9, even in Nehemiah. What would be an even greater obstacle? Perhaps the greatest is death itself. Think about all the death all the bloodshed involved, especially in the old, especially in the Old Testament, right? There seemed to be a glimmer of hope when Cain and Abel are born. Right? In the opening verse, Eve says, "After Cain is born, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord." So she's. It seems like Eve is wondering: is is it is it my son? Is it Cain? Is he going to deliver? Up, nope. Cain ends up being a murderer and a wanderer and a faithless man whose offering is rejected from the Lord. So we know it's not Cain. Well, what about Abel? Up too bad, Abel dies. Immediately, it's like we see this, the the futility of a misplaced hope. Even after Seth is born, we find that death reigns through humanity. Which I think that gives us some clarity regarding the seed of the woman, right? Uh, if you look in Genesis five, it details the generations, the seed of Adam, right? And all these men, sire, sons, the seed of man. But what happens to them? They all die, death, 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 one after another. And he died, and he died. And it seems like we got, we see brother Methuselah there, nine hundred and sixty-nine years. Wow, he's just he keeps living, but he dies too. They all die. And then the flood comes. And everyone except Noah and his family die. I mean, this is getting kind of depressing. Because death is reigning. And yet we go back to the promise. What does it say? Does it say the seed of man? No, it says the seed of the woman. It says the seed of the woman. And the reason that, that is important is because I think this is pretty firmly established in Scripture is that it is sin that is passed through the seed of man. Not the woman. And so the fact that Jesus is born of a woman, as Galatians later on says, specifies, born of a woman, right? But that sin, that original sin was not passed to Jesus. That's why He was born sinless. What, is, what does the angel say to, to Mary? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, right? I'm a virgin. How is this going to happen? That's a good question. So, well, the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how you are going to conceive and bear a son. And so once again, you see the supernatural intervention of God so that things that are impossible from a human point of view are made inevitable from God's point of view. And what are we asked to do? We are asked to trust Him. We are asked to believe in His Word and what He reveals. And so that is is, is how the promise is fulfilled. It is not through the seed of man that our salvation will come, but rather through the seed, rather the, the offspring of the woman, singular. That offspring being Jesus, who will crush the head of the serpent. That's that's such a precious promise to us—a promise we do well to believe. So even death itself, and you know, going back to that, you are familiar with the story of the kings. Have right? you read 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and Second Chronicles, you see some of these horrific acts perpetrated by people who claim to be the people of Yahweh. There is an episode where Queen Athaliah goes on a mission to kill all of the royal offspring. Well, Jesus is to come from the kingly line of Judah. So again, from a human point of view, the, the, the kingly line could be eradicated. No kingly line, no Messiah. The promises of God fall apart. You could throw away your Bible, but don't. <laughs> we read that this, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So they hid him from Athaliah and he was not put to death. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord six years while Athaliah was reigning over the land. She seems to compete with Jezebel in her measure of wickedness. But our greatest threat has always been death. And of course, we see death lurking. But the promises of God against this promised seed remain fixed. So even though it seems to have come down to one of the royal line, he was hidden and he lived. In the New Testament, in Matthew two, we see Herod's attempt on the life of Jesus. Right? It seems as these promises, the promises, uh, this promise from God, takes shape and more, more details are are given and revealed. The more the more specific the attacks get on the people of God, and I think this is the greatest example. Now we know who it is. Now we know who this Savior is who's born. All right, let's go after him. So, this satanic attack on Christ, Herod's attempt, where he goes and he murders all the male children under two. But Jesus, like Joash, is hidden away and his life is preserved. And the promise of God is still intact. God simply has a way of making sure that His Word comes to pass. And it's like, you think about it, how, what, is, what is the life expectancy of a promise you make? What, how, what is the lifespan of a guarantee? Most of them have expiration dates. You say something, you don't know if it's going to be true in five minutes. I mean, look what we're witnessing, right? What's the weather like in Colorado today? I don't know. Ask me in 15 minutes. It's sunny in 68 at 8 a.m. And then by 7 p.m. it's not sunny and it's negative 22. I mean, human, human words, human promises, human guarantees are by and large futile. We 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 make guarantees. We want to keep our word, and there's so many mitigating factors. And we see sometimes the the very promises we made, the very guarantees that we seem so optimistic at the time, and they fall flat on their face. And yet here we have the promise of God being kept intact for well over four thousand years against every kind against every threat imaginable: barrenness, no descendants, immorality, death. And even divine judgment. We've talked about the flood. We've talked about even the threat made against Israel. The Lord was ready to wipe them out. And then Moses interceded. And, and of course, God was gracious and merciful and did not slay them. And we just talked about the problem of inborn sin. But Galatians 4.4 4 says this, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So there is the preservation of the seed. And along with these, promises are made by God Himself. I think we have time for this. Because again, we have to go on what the Bible says. These are not fleeting promises that without any detail we can look back at the body of Holy Writ and see, yes, God has clearly given these promises. We read in Genesis 45, 7, that the seed is preserved through Joseph, I mean, chalk that up to another one. The promise is preserved even through a great famine. Who saw that coming? God did. He even declared it and brought it about. But in Genesis 45-7, we read this. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. What a foreshadowing of the gospel that is. We live in light of that great deliverance. How I, That's why the... the that's why the Scripture marvels. What What are we to do if we neglect so great a salvation? You're killing yourself. You're crazy to, to neglect so great of a deliverance. So that's the testimony of Joseph. In 2 Kings 19, 29-31, we read this, Then this shall be a sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself, in the second year what springs from the same, and in the third year sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant. And out of Mount Zion's survivors, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. Once again, talking about a surviving remnant, even through exile, the Lord will keep His promises. We've got to add that in light of Daniel, right? Even this, the seed will be preserved even through exile. And the coming and going of all of these nations some with some pagan kings some righteous kings but even displaced from israel right not only is god's presence not compromised but neither are his promises ezra 9 after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt since you our, our god have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escape remnant is this shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations There it is. Once again, those partnerships making the same mistakes. Back to the text. Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. No one can stand before you because of this. Good news. The gospel is able to make you stand. God is gracious and he Keeps His promises. Isaiah 6.13, Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Right, Even though Israel is cut off, there a stump will remain. They will not be completely uprooted. God will keep His promises, and from that stump there will be a branch, and that branch will be the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Now, into the New Testament from Romans 11. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So after the Gospel is comes full force through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the question becomes, well, what does God do with this race through whom He preserved His seed? And therefore His promise. Has He cast them off? Paul says, not at all. I'm the first one to prove that. I'm I'm an Israelite. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin and God saved me. And if He can save me, He can save any Jew. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. And then you go down to verse 5 of Romans 11. In the same way then, there is also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So all this time... God is preserving this righteous seed. And now that this seed has accomplished His work on the cross and then has conquered death by rising on the third day, salvation is proclaimed to the nations, both Jew and Gentile. God has kept His promises and we live as Christians as His church in light of those promises. But it all goes back to Genesis 3.15. Between your seed and Curse, right? The seed of the woman through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has done his work. He has accomplished his mission. And of course, the Jews really struggled with this. I don't think they were expecting this humble suffering servant to come and lay his life down, not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. So there's a lot of struggle with that. There was a lot of spiritual rebellion in first century Jerusalem. And that spiritual rebellion was the foundation of rejecting Christ. So here's the next thing we want to look at. So we find that this promise is preserved. Let's try to get through this. So a war must be declared. A promise must be preserved. And third, in order to go from curse to conquer, we must understand that a victory must be secured. And so we move on in the text of Genesis chapter 3, and we read this. This enmity results in and a hostile battle results in, in each of these individuals striking the other. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You shall bru- He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now note that these are not equal blows, right? One is more devastating than the other. It is one thing to bruise one on the heel. It is quite another to bruise one on the head. Sometimes it's translated crush. Right? Sometimes it's understood as to be overwhelmed. It's not just a wound on his head that he will recover from. He will be broken and that without remedy. And we find that the Messiah will be bruised on the heel, but this bruising will not be nearly as devastating. It will not be the same devastating wound that it is to the serpent. Now when we see Jesus hanging on the cross... Yeah, we may think, oh, surely He's defeated. He has been beaten beyond recognition. He's been spat upon. He's been cursed. He's been rejected. There He is hanging helplessly on the cross. But only through the eyes of faith can we see that as a conquering act. That when Christ is on the cross, though through worldly unbelieving eyes, He may seem to be a defeated, helpless victim, through heaven's eyes, He is proclaiming victory against all principalities and powers. That is a, the cross becomes a winning move. And of course, that is solidified when he rises on the third day, thus proving that death could not hold him, that his sacrifice before the Father was received, that he lived a perfect life, and that he was raised for our justification. Everything that the Lord Jesus did was righteous, and that righteousness is now, can now be imputed to our account by grace through faith. So we see the marvel of how this all fits together. That when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, He beat the serpent. It is, it is a wonder why we keep implying that somehow we're losing the battle down here. The battle down here was won a long time ago and we are living in light of that growing present victory. That's why we should be excited about the Gospel. That it's not merely just to save souls. We are preaching the kingdom of a Glorious resurrected Lord, who proclaims victory to the captives, whose kingdom is advancing inevitably, so that the whole the whole world will be filled with the mountain of God. That His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we see an interplay in this too, throughout scriptures that we've just described. But there will be there will be occasions in Scripture where there is a bruising of the heel, right? This striking is going on back and forth until the final blow of the cross, but bruising the heel, we've talked about it. We've talked about the giants, right? The Nephilim, wickedness, slavery in Egypt, persecution by the Philistines, the siege of Jerusalem by King Sennacherib, the exile, all episodes of bruising the heel. But then we see bruising the head of the serpent, the flood, right? Where wicked men are wiped out. Killing the firstborn in Egypt. The humiliation of the Egyptian pantheon. Cutting off the head of Goliath. Right? That was an episode of crushing the head of the serpent. The return from exile. And of course, culminating in the work of Christ on the cross. So there's sort of this back and forth until the final blow has been delivered. So back to the text. You shall bru- he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So I want to expand briefly on what it is that is being bruised here because it's not just here, here's the thing, our destiny, right? our entire eternity is tied up in what this deliverer is able to do. When we talk even though it talks about seed singular, we are also the seed by faith by virtue of our faith in Christ. We become holy seed. We become true offspring of Abraham, as the New Testament teaches, right' it's not It's not the physical offspring that matters. it is the spiritual offspring. Abraham had faith, so we have faith, and so we become true children of Abraham, even though we are Gentiles by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what this seed represents when it comes to the serpent, it doesn't just represent. Satan as an individual. It represents Satan's entire enterprise, right? Don't miss that. It's not as if Satan has just been stagnant, operating on his own. He is not a lone wolf. He has his emissaries. He has his allies. He has his programs. In the same manner that God has his people, right? Satan has his people. Satan has his seed. Satan has his offspring, right? What does John the Baptist, John the Reformed Baptist, tell the the scribes and Pharisees when he sees them when he's baptizing out in the wilderness? He says, you brood of vipers, right? You offspring, you seed of snakes. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. John the Baptist knows his Bible. He's identifying them. He's identifying who they are in, in their hearts by their very nature. They descend from this, they are the seed of the serpent. They descend from Satan. Jesus does the same thing in similar fashion. I believe it's Matthew 23 where he says, hypocrites, brood of vipers, right? Same thing. He is identifying them. You are of your father, the devil. He calls them in the Gospel of John. He's not just making a petty remark. He's identifying their origin. He's identifying where their allegiance is like, who they are partnered with. You are the seed of the dragon. For all to see, no wonder they were so angry at him, among other reasons. But that is what this bruising, that is what this overwhelming involves, right? The Gospel of John says, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness cannot overcome the light. In fact, the light will overcome the darkness, And does so as the power of the gospel goes forth and does its work. We see that incrementally. The light daily overcoming the darkness. And though it may seem that the darkness is strong or that the darkness is insurmountable. Quite the opposite is true. It is the light that cannot be defeated. Because that is the light of our Lord Jesus Christ who brings us victory over the enemy. And so what is being bruised? What is being crushed? We're saying the devil's entire enterprise. And it's helpful, it's helpful to us in our understanding of the Gospel to know what is being undermined. What is being defeated as it pertains to the devil? It is 1 John that tells us that the reason that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. The Greek word there, I believe, is luo, which means to loose. Think about untying a shoe right? and the mess that causes. It's like the the dam bursts. That is how profound the work of the cross is. So we don't want to think that somehow the work of our Lord Jesus against the works of the devil is somehow tamed. Or that it's done with great ease. No, this is a, a blitzkrieg. This is a destructive act. He wants to make the kingdom of Satan into nothing, right? Even the Gospel of John describes Satan as being cast out. It's like he's being bounced. He had dominion at one point and then the Lord came in and said, nope, this is my, this is my turf. I'm claiming it. I'm taking it back. So I don't want us to think that somehow this is cute and nice and pleasant. No, this is, this is violence. This is holy violence against the works of the devil. He wants to see them destroyed. And so should we. What are the works of the devil? The devil kills. I think that's the most plain thing. The devil kills. He was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says. In Hebrews 2.14, we read that through death, Jesus might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. We are granted life in Christ. Here we see how the Lord reverses these things, destroys them by reversing them and then granting us almost their opposite. The devil kills. Jesus doesn't just neutralize death. He gives us life eternal through His resurrection. The devil lies. He is the father of lies, John 8.44 tells us. What do we have from Christ? It's not just that the lie has been exposed. It's that the truth tells, is told to us and lives in us. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed with him, in him, with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we live, of course, in light of that hope, that promise of eternal life. We're secure from the devil's lies because we have the truth of the gospel. Satan afflicts us. He afflicts us in his own way. He still is able to do that. He persecutes us. And typically, he uses worldly powers. There's a, the devil is very political, you will notice. Throughout history, he often uses pagan kings, whether this side of the cross or in the, Old, in the Old Testament. He uses pagan rulers to afflict the people of God. But how do we stand against that? Well, we put on the armor of God. We have the shield of faith. And we extinguish all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Even though we are persecuted and afflicted, God ultimately causes us to stand and to persevere in the faith even though it seems that our backs are up against the wall at times. Satan also accuses us. This is one benefit of the promise that we often underestimate. Satan accuses us. But what do we read in Scripture? There is therefore now no condemnation against those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. That law of the Spirit of life which is in who? Christ Jesus, and it set us free. If God has declared us righteous, if He justifies us, who can say otherwise, right? If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He tempts us. But we read in 1 Corinthians 10 that no temptation has overtaken us, but such is common to a man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what we are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that we are able to endure it. See, the devil's works are being destroyed. And they are being destroyed in us. We are fellow partakers of this. We are a walking, living, breathing example as Christians of the devil's works being continually undermined. So let us not treat with neutrality this act- this satanic activity, this satanic rebellion. Let us not ally ourselves ourselves with the very programs and institutions that Jesus has freed us from. Don't make covenants with them. Don't make partnerships with those who array themselves against God's appointed King, our King Jesus. Don't array yourself with the serpent. Do not be His seed. And we have great hope because greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. Christ is with us, and if He is with us, then who can be against us? And that is the great story of Christianity, that is the great story of redemption, is that our enemy is not just neutralized. He is not just defeated, He is crushed, He is destroyed. That, that is graphic, and it is meant to be graphic, that any remnant of the devil's presence will be destroyed. And that is why we preach the gospel. To make the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ known. To make the truth known that the seed has come. That God has, pro- has kept His promise. And that Satan is a defeated enemy. That is the greatness of the Gospel. That is the greatness of grace. That is the victory that has been secured. And going to the end of the story, it's amazing. In Revelation 22.3, we read about this this descending of the new heavens and new earth. How John describes it is quite beautiful. He says, there will no longer be any curse. And all of the universe could ah, give a collective sigh of relief. Because that is what is declared in Genesis 3. We only know the world in its cursed condition. And yet, the Gospel provides in all of its beauty, in all of its victory and power, that one day there will no longer be any curse. And right now, as the Gospel goes forth, we see that curse being lifted. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bond servants that is us, bought back from the penalty of sin, we will serve Him. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for that. <laughs> but that is, how it, that is how it goes. From cursed to conquer. And remember... One of the great things about the Gospel, even though we're talking about from curse to conquer, right? It applies to Jesus and it applies to us because Jesus took our curse upon Himself and conquered death in the grave. How do we go from curse to conquer? Well, we receive by grace through faith the promise of the Gospel, the provisions of Christ in His death and resurrection. We receive through faith Christ Himself. And we read in Romans eight that we were overwhelmingly conquerors through him through him who loved us. So we have no fear, we have no doubt that through the promised seed of God we live in light of that victory. No longer are we cursed. Now we are conquerors through the ultimate conqueror and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for our time in your word, our time together. We we pray God that uh, you will help us embrace the promises given in Genesis 3:15 that have ultimately been secured in Christ. Yes, Lord, we are we are at war. War has been declared by you. But this war has been won. And victory has been proclaimed through the death and resurrection of Christ. We thank You for this promise that was preserved and though through a human point of view so much stood against it, so much threatened it. Lord, Your Word is true and it is sure. And in that, we know that our victory is secured in Christ. Help us, God, to persevere in light of these three precious things. And there's so much more that could be unpacked from this passage, but Lord, we can take respite We can have peace knowing that if You are for us, nothing can be against us. Thank You, Lord, for our our conquering King that we can in Him go from cursed to conquered that the curse over us has been lifted because our Savior has become a curse for us. And that now we can stand not cursed, but blessed and triumphant and joyful in You. So we do thank you lord and we pray that uh, if in any way have been insufficient in explaining this lord that you will you will minister to us with what we need you will be our that you will be our all sufficient savior in jesus name we pray amen